So we have several questions on consciousness. Oh. First one is from Jonathan M. Is it true that the difference between ego and witness is that the ego is self as sakshi, plus the error of identifying as an individual, experiencing a separate phenomenal world, samsara, whereas sakshi is self without any such error of individuality and perceiving samara as a mere appearance of self. And from Ashok D, is consciousness a creation of the brain? If not, what proof can be given in support of this? All right. <laughs> Let me uh, take up the second one first, but that's a more general question. Is consciousness a creation or a product of the brain? If not, what proof can be given? in support of the, that, that if you're claiming that consciousness is not in fact a product of the brain. Um, so let me take that up. Let me first give you the direct answer from a Vedantic perspective. And then we'll take up a more general discussion. Directly, if you ask a non-dualist and Advait in this question, the answer will be very simple and direct. The answer is, look to your own experience. In your experience, you will find that you are the experiencer, the subject, and you experience many things. What are the things that you experience? You experience an external world, objects and people, living beings, non-living beings, activities going on in the world. You experience your own body, also physical. So there's a, there's a whole world of physical things which you experience. And when we look inward, there is a private world which each of us experiences, a private world of thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas, the person which we are. So this is the entire set, the universe of experienced objects. They are all objects. From a Vedantic perspective, they are all objects. So how would you define an object? In a Vedantic perspective, Defining an object is very simple. Whatever you experience or you can experience is an object. It could be something outside. It could be a living thing, non-living thing. It could be an action, could be speech, sound, light, form, taste, smell, touch. It could be something in, entirely in your mind. Your own thoughts, feelings, ideas, memories. It could be the presence of all objects like this waking. It could be the vague experiences, the, the entirely private inner experience of dreams. Or it could be the absence of all experiences. That is also an experience, like deep sleep, for example. The presence and the absence of objects are all experienced by what? That which at this moment is the experiencer in itself. That is consciousness. So the two cannot be the same. Very clearly, you the experiencer and what you experience, the two different things. That's the preliminary, the first step. The first step. It's not even Advaita, this is Sankhya. The differentiation between the subject and the object. And already you will see what we often take to be the subject. I myself, my body, my thoughts, my personality, they all become what? Object. Are you with me? Or have I left you behind? They all become object. Why? Simple reason. Because I experience it. 
therefore it is an object. If I experience my own thoughts, my own happiness, my own misery, then my happiness, misery, thoughts, they are also objects to what? To me the awareness, to me the, the consciousness. So that which experiences in itself is consciousness. Often it is mixed up with or associated with a group of objects. What are these group of objects? Mind, body. So normally when we speak and interact in the world, we include a few objects into the subject. My mind and my body, what I call my body and mind, this is included as I myself. We include it in the subject, but it's not the subject. Why is it not the subject? Why is it not really I? Because these are objects, they are objects of experience. So the subject and the object, consciousness and its objects are distinct. From an Advaitic perspective, Adi Shankaracharya says, as distinct as light and darkness. As distinct as light and darkness. Tamap prakashavad viruddha swabhavayo. In, in the Adhyasa Bhashya, introduction to the Brahma Sutra Bhashya, Shankaracharya says, the subject and the object, consciousness and its objects, are as distinct as light and darkness. You cannot, they cannot be the same. They cannot belong to the same category. Now, bring it to bear on this question. Is consciousness a product of the brain? What is the brain? Is it an object? Very much so. It's part of the physical body. It's part of the physical body. Can it be experienced? It is being experienced. If you see a scan of your brain, you are looking at an at a, at a, uh, instrument readout of your brain. When you look at the uh, EEG or the fMRI, you are looking at reports from instruments about your brain. In, indirectly, you are making the brain an object of your experience. The brain is very much an object. To, to a doctor, the, what you call your brain, is, is an object. It's just a little bit of living flesh. So from a Vedantic perspective, to say that an object has generated consciousness is ridiculous. It is in consciousness, it is by consciousness and through consciousness that all objects are experienced. That is not to say that the object has, has nothing to do with the consciousness. It could very well be, and it is a fact, that consciousness works through living bodies and, um, and so including the brains and nervous systems. So they are entirely distinct. Of course, Advaita Vedanta goes further. I'll just mention how it goes one step further. Not only a consciousness and its object, entirely dis distinct consciousness is never an object, but one step further, the objects are not actually distinct from consciousness. Because look at your experience. All objects, whatever you are experiencing or can experience, are all experienced in you, the awareness. If they are experienced in you, the awareness, and only in the awareness, are they really distinct from awareness? Advaita Vedanta says, just as this distinction of object and subject, actually it holds true in dreams. In dreams you are there and you are experiencing many things, people and places and happenings. And yet when you wake up, what do you say? All of that was in my mind. Similarly, Advaita Vedanta says, in this waking state, it's not that you will wake up and suddenly say all of this was in my mind. Rather, all of this and my mind, all of this is in consciousness right now. Is not separate from consciousness right now. 
And by the wonderful power of Maya, that's what Advaita Vedanta says, it is consciousness alone appearing as its own object. So what Advaita Vedanta does is, it first makes a clean distinction between subject and object. How? From your own experience, from logic, from experience. And then it goes further to reduce the, sub, the object back into the subject. Whereas materialistic science, look at the question, how can you prove that consciousness is not a product of the brain? If consciousness, you are saying consciousness, you the awareness, you are a product of the living matter in your body, in the skull. Then what you are saying is that you the awareness, consciousness is a product of object, of matter. Fundamentally you are reducing the subject into object. What Advaita Vedanta has done is, first it makes a clean distinction between the pure subject and all objects and then reduces the objects back into the subject. Reduces means not that it pounds all objects back into subjects. You just see that it can't be anything apart from you, the experiencer. But what materialistic science wants to say is that everything must be matter. What you think of as spirit or consciousness or mind or whatever, whatever you can think of, somehow must be a product of matter. So from a Vedantic perspective, Advaitic perspective, this question does not stand. Clearly, because even the brain and the nervous system and the living body are objects to consciousness. Okay. A more general discussion. This question has been raised recently in, in modern science and modern thought, a couple of decades ago, by a young Australian philosopher, David Chalmers. In fact, he became very famous because he raised this question in a, in a conference. It became a revolutionary question. If you Google it now, it's history now. It's called the hard problem of consciousness. What he said was, coming from it from an entirely Western philosophical thought perspective, the same conclusion which Sankhya and Vedanta reached thousands of years ago, he raised this question that how can a physical entity have an inner life. We all have inner lives, right? We all, each of us, we are, we are something physically present here. You are sitting on the chair, which is visible to everybody. But also, you have an inner life going on, which is private. It feels like something to be you, which nobody else can experience. You'd say, yeah, but what's so great about that? What's so great about that is this. This table, or this chair, um, or this plate here, it can be completely described, it can be completely understood by looking at it and examining its properties objectively. Uh, you, uh, there's nothing more to it, there's no dual side to it. It makes no sense to ask, how does this clock feel inside? How does it feel like to be a clock? What does it feel like to be a clock? No, there's no such sense. No, the question has no, no meaning. You might say, well, how do you know? The clock might be conscious inside. Uh, but it's, um, there's no point saying this because we have no evidence to show that. There is, it does not uh, demonstrate or show any possibility of having an inner life. A physical entity, this is a complex entity, a clock. A physical entity, like this clock, or in Vedantic terms, an object, has no inner life. All you can see of it is all it is. 
The more you examine it objectively with microscopes and electron microscopes and all, it will reveal more and more of its objective nature. There is nothing subjective about this, nothing inert to it. There is nothing like what it is like to be a clock. But there is certainly like what is it like to be you. You feel something inside. How can a physical, now this is the hard problem of consciousness, how can a physical entity, just like this clock, a physical entity, the brain and the nervous system and the living body have a dual nature, physical nature and also inner subjective nature, objective nature and inner subjective nature. How? And this question has taken on more relevance today when you are generating, you are developing artificial intelligence, computers which can mimic all our activities. They can talk, they can interact with you, they can do all kinds of jobs. They are intelligent because they perform intelligent tasks. But are they aware inside? Even the best engineers of Google, IBM and all, nobody will say that my product, my machine has inner awareness. No. It's just a machine functioning with algorithms. It's there. And it can mimic all our activities. Even, we have gone so far as to demonstrate, intelligence may not require consciousness. Somebody put it, now we are beginning to understand in the age of intelligent machines, we are beginning to understand, you don't have to be intelligent, you don't have to be intelligent to suffer. An animal, a frog, or, or um, a little dog out there, uh, dogs are pretty intelligent, but say a frog or, 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 or a lizard or something, it suffers. When it's hurt and it's dying, it suffers. It's not particularly intelligent. Your computers today in uh, the um, artificial intelligence machines are more intelligent than that little creature in some ways. Can do enormous tasks which that little creature cannot even imagine. And yet that creature can suffer. But the computer cannot suffer. The idea of suffering, of pain, includes consciousness, first-person experience. There must be an inner feeling of pleasure, of pain, which a computer cannot experience. So an objective machine, an object, something which is matter entirely, can perform many of the activities of conscious beings, yet without being conscious. And we are conscious. How? I regard this question as one of the most important questions of our time. The hard problem of consciousness. Though it was asked thousands of years ago, for the first time it is making a comeback. In this age when science has progressed so much, we are now beginning to ask this most important of questions. And there are multiple answers to it. So I was very happy to see David Chalmers who became famous because of this one question he asked. Uh, I, I was so happy to see that here he is here in New York. He is the head of the Mind Brain Consciousness Unit in New York University. And recently I, I met with him and I said, see there are two important questions in modern thought, in modern Western thought, from a Vedantic perspective. Martin Heidegger was one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century. His name is Mud now because he got mixed up with the Nazis. But that does not detract from the fact that he was a brilliant philosopher. He asked the question, what is existence, being? And now you are asking the question, what is consciousness?
From a Vedantic perspective, these are the two questions about Sat and Chit. Questions have been asked. Answers are very far away in modern thought. But I'm very glad these questions have been asked today. What is existence itself? Heidegger. What is really consciousness? Chalmers. Of course, I think he blushed when I, if I, when I compared him to Heidegger. But, but it's true. It's, it's, it, these are fundamental questions. Um, it was just the other day, uh, we were at the Institute of Advanced Studies. Professor Jha is here, who gave us a very, a very wonderful tour. Swami Atmapriyanji had come. And uh, that's where Einstein worked, uh, Oppenheimer, von Neumann, uh, Godel, good Godel. Um, there, one of the top uh, faculty members there is Ed Witten. He's a physicist. I mean, Google, if you Google him, it describes him as the smartest man alive today. <laughs> as, as something of, like Google, like uh, Internet will. But uh, it, it, it's compared to the closest thing we have got to Einstein today. Now, why I'm bringing this up is, there's a short interview with him about consciousness. I was surprised, because that's not his field. His field is string theory. But he's obviously a tremendously intelligent person, very perceptive. Now, he was asked suddenly about consciousness. And a if you Google Ed Witten consciousness, you'll find it on YouTube. Just five minutes. And he gives a very perceptive answer. He says, as we go on studying the brain, See, I have not forgotten the question, coming back to the question. As we go on studying the brain, we will learn more and more about the brain, but I think consciousness will remain a mystery. That's what Ed Witten says. That's not to say consciousness is not associated with the brain and nervous system, but it's not produced by the brain and nervous system. If, what is David Chalmers' theory? He says consciousness is all pervasive. It could be, he says, it could be. He calls it a crazy idea. So it could be that consciousness is all pervasive and it works through a brain. It works through a brain and a nervous system. And that's why it seems that it is being produced by the brain. All of you came in through that door. Now if I didn't know what you were, I would say that the door is a fantastic thing. It produced so many people. <laughs> it produces all these people and it absorbs all these people. They arise from the door and they disappear back into the door. Oh, almighty door. <laughs> No, the door has almost nothing to do with you. It's just been shaped in such a way which allows you in and out. All right. Now going back to the first question. Now it's, it's pretty easy. He says, witness consciousness and the ego. Witness consciousness and the ego. These are very precisely defined terms in Vedanta. Ego is called ahankara. Abhimanatmika antakkarana vritti. That which says, I, I, I. Say, what is that? Look inside you. I. I am sitting. I am talking. I am walking. I am happy. I am unhappy. I am spiritual. I am not spiritual. I, I, I. This is a function of the mind. This is nothing more than a function of the mind. And remember, according to Vedanta, even the mind, subject or object? object. Should be confident. Do you experience your own mind? Can you experience your own mind? Yes. Look inside, you'll find. If you can experience it, it's an object. Then the ego, a function of the mind, is it a subject or object? Object. This is the, this is the 
the um, hammer blow of Vedanta, stunning insight, what everybody accepts as the subject, all throughout philosophy, literature, everywhere, what is I? The subject. Vedanta says, the I which is experienced as the ego, the experienced I, very careful, experienced I, is an object. It's simply a function of the mind. An object to what? An object to the witness consciousness, Sakshi. An object to the Atman. To you the awareness. You shine upon the mind. And the mind functions in these ways. Ahankara, ego. Chitta, memory. Uh, manas, the cogitating aspect of the mind. Buddhi, intellect. These are various aspects of the same instrument. An object. It's an instrument. Including the ego. That's why Shankaracharya sings... Mano naham. I am not the mind, I am not the intellect, I am not the memory, I am not the ego. Literally, if you translate in English, it will become, I am not I. <laughs> it sounds contradictory, but if you look at it in your, in your experience, it's not contradictory. It's a matter of common experience. Everybody experiences it all the time. We don't pay attention to that experience. So yes, the Sakshi... And the ego are different. The ego is a function of the mind. I remember what, what the question was. But I'm saying that I'm asking you to rephrase the question in this way. The ego being an object cannot be the witness consciousness. The witness consciousness identifies itself with the ego. Or the ego identifies itself with the witness consciousness. And together we don't distinguish it. Together we say I. But it is always different. The ego comes and go, goes. Do you disappear when the ego disappears? No. In deep sleep, no ego. Have you disappeared? That might be a confusing question. But sometimes, in the waking state, when you are hard at work, fully concentrated, playing a game of tennis or table tennis or something, or a, a doctor performing an operation, or you're absorbed in your research in a laboratory or in your, in your uh, office, you forget the eye sense. In fact, Anybody who's a musician, you know that if you're self-conscious, you can't play properly. When you're really playing well, when you're giving a wonderful um, um, performance, you are not self-conscious. The I, I am playing, this thought, has to disappear. That, that's called flow in music. So this I sense comes and goes. It's not permanent. If, are you, do you come and go? When you are playing tennis and there's no sense of I, you're just absorbed in it. Or you're playing your guitar, you're absorbed in it. The I is not, is not functional, is not there. The ego is not there. It's, you are in flow. Will you say you are not there, then who's playing? You are there. In fact, you are more alert than... And you, usually that's a very fulfilling experience. The experience of flow, when everything is going perfectly, that experience of flow is the most fulfilling experience, more fulfilling than egotistic experiences. So, um, Susan Blackmore, uh, who, uh, as an expert in consciousness studies, who wrote the Oxford very short introduction to consciousness, I think it's Sue Blackmore, uh, she s compares this ego, the ego subject, to a light in a refrigerator. When you open the door, the light is on. When you close it, is the light on or off? <laughs> the moment you try to check, it's <laughs> on again. 
it's like that. It's like the ego is like that. Consciousness is ever present. All right. I think we should move on to the. You have one more question from the. Yes. We have a couple more on consciousness. Yes, go ahead. Okay. Devanshu asks there is a concept of ajata vada, non being, of this universe. And in the lecture on Vijnana Vedanta, Ayan Maharaj said that if this universe exists, then this universe must be Brahman itself. Can you please clarify? All uh, right. This, you have one more? Yeah. Um, or okay. I will ask the question. This is a heavy one. <laughs> and go on. Ayushi B. Are we one or are we the ones with the same originality slash characteristics? Two people in the same situation choose to respond differently. Why are there different responses when the reality is that we both are the same consciousness? If we all are one, then why do we face the effect of our actions and karma individually? Am I individually responsible for my actions, or is it I, the supreme reality, that is predestined to act this way? I think I'll take that one, it's much easier. <laughs> um, are we one or many? If we are, Vedanta seems to say we are one consciousness, and yet people react so differently in the same circumstances. So why is this difference amongst us if we are one? The answer is not very difficult to give. If you keep in mind the clear division which I spoke about, you are the pure subject consciousness right now. And then on top of that, or associated that with comes one layer of the mind. By mind, I'm using a broad term. Mind, intellect, memory, the entire personality. That comes over consciousness. Like light shining through the stained glass window. Light is like consciousness. Stained glass window is like the, your personality. Now, when you look at it from the other side, from inside, you will see the light takes on the color of the stained glass window. Isn't it? So the mind with its, particular, with its peculiarities, that is different from person to person. Clearly it's different. Bodies are different, clearly you can count them, you can see they're different, they look different, they are, they are different. Minds are also different. Each mind has its own peculiarity, its own conditioning. But the consciousness which shines through all of them is one and the same. At the level of consciousness we are one. But the moment that consciousness becomes limited by separate minds, then it appears to be separate. It functions as if separate. And it interacts with each other. Now we can speak about each other. Same consciousness, now each other. Through different bodies and minds. Now it's very easy to explain why different people react in different ways in different circumstances. Different minds. Right now, are we very different from each other as minds and bodies? Yes. Imagine your experience in deep sleep. In deep sleep. When there's no experience of the body, when there's no experience of the mind, under the influence of sleep, no doubt. How much difference is there between your deep sleep and your friend's deep sleep and your husband's or wives and parents and children? How much difference? None. Your deep sleep and your worst enemy's deep sleep. How much difference? How much enmity? Nothing. How much is the difference between our deep sleep and the deep sleep of an animal? They also have deep sleep. 
deep sleep of an ant? How much difference? None. You say, do ants sleep? I was also surprised. I saw a paper many years ago. Ants have sleep also. Uh, we sleep, we have two kinds of sleep. Uh, it's called rapid eye movement sleep, sleep REM sleep, and non-rapid eye movement sleep, REM sleep and non-REM sleep. Ants have rapid antenna movement sleep, RAM sleep, <laughs> and non-RAM sleep. If you Google it, you'll find it. It's very interesting. <laughs> they have micro sleeps, where they walk and they suddenly they stop, and the antenna are vibrating. They're sleeping, actually. And they're, they're, so maybe they're dreaming also, little ant dreams. And then that dream also stops. Non-RAM sleep. Non-antenna movements, rapid antenna movement sleep. Whatever. But at that time, an ant is not an ant. A human being is not a human being. We are just consciousness enveloped in darkness. So difference is in mind. Difference, difference is in the dress that we put on. Difference is in the minds, in the bodies. As in our real nature, what we truly are, no difference. We are one and the same. Now going back to the earlier question, that's a heavy one. The question was that according to Gaurapada in the Mandukya Karika, the universe is non-existent. Brahman alone exists. This is called non-origination, ajatavada. The universe was never born. And then he mentions Ayan Maharaj. Ayan Maharaj came and gave a talk here. So he listened very carefully to Ayan Maharaj. He says, in Ayan Maharaj's conception, which talks about Vigyana Vedanta of Sri Ramakrishna, the universe itself is Brahman. Can you explain the two? How can you say the universe does not exist, and then you can say the universe itself is Brahman, or Brahman itself is the universe? Actually, the two are the same. The two are the same. What does it mean they're exactly the same? It's like this. First of all, let's understand in a very simple way, what does it mean that the universe is not born? Uh, here is the universe. How can you say the universe was not created? You can say the universe was created from God, from Brahman, whatever. You can say that the universe is um, uh, created from a big bang, but not at all created. How can you say that? That sounds crazy. Here we're seeing it. We're living here. In fact, Brahman is a quest big question mark for us. But the universe is... It's like this. Take the classic example of the clay pot. We think it's a pot. What Vedanta says, no, no, no. There is something called clay, which is the cause of this pot. Cause is a philosophical term, which it means the pot was created from the clay. You say, okay, I can accept that. So there is a clay and there is pot. And the pot was created from the clay. Remember, st step one, pot, pot only. Like us, we say, universe only. What is this Brahman? Question mark. This person says, there's only a pot. Clay, it's theoretical. What is the clay? I don't know. It's question mark. Then, then it's introduced that no, clay is the source from which the pot was born. It's the material out, which the, out of which the pot was created. Okay, we begin to understand. Then in the third step, we start investigating where is clay? Where is Brahman? And we are told, look at the pot itself. Look at the product. You will find the cause, the material there in the product. The product is the pot. When we examine the product, outside, clay, inside, clay. Bottom, clay, top, clay. It's clay through and through. So there itself, 
pervading the entire product, entire pot, is this clay. In fact, in the stage 4, we will go and say, there is no such thing called pot. There is only clay. Pot is a name, is an appearance, a shape, a, a use, a transaction. Nama, Rupa, Vyavahara. Superimposed on the original clay. The clay alone is the reality. So we, you can say, wait, wait, wait a minute. Can't we say now there are two? There is the pot, which is uh, real, and there is the clay. I understand now what is the clay. Clay is also real. Pot is also real. No. You have to be, we have to be very philosophical here. You have to be ruthless here. What do you mean by real? Advaita will then ask. If there are two reals, then show me the two reals separately. You cannot. You can only show me the clay or the clay shaped as a pot. You can never show me the pot apart from the clay. But you can show me the clay apart from the pot. The clay can be a lump of clay. The clay can be some other thing. A different kind of pot, a jar or something. So the clay can very well exist without the pot. The pot cannot exist without the clay. The pot is a dependent existence. Or Gaudapada would push further and say, no pot was ever truly born of clay. Have you followed so far? Let me run through the four stages very quickly. Pot, stage one. No question of clay. Just, uh, this is a pot. Then the idea of clay is introduced to us, stage two. Clay is the cause, pot is the effect. Stage three, we investigate the pot and find that it is clay through and through. There is no separate thing called a pot. The thing, the material, the reality is clay. You say, no, no, but there is a, the pot, what is the pot then? Apart from the clay, the pot is just a name. It's just a form. You say, yeah, but it is a form, right? It, be careful when you're saying it is. Can you attach isness to a form? No, because if you take the clay away, what will happen to the form? Disappear. It cannot hang in the air. It exists depending on the clay. The clay does not depend on the, on the form. Forms come and go. Clay is the same. So, name, form and use is pot, but entirely dependent on the clay. And the stage four, we realize there is no such thing called pot which was ever created from the clay. It is still the same clay. Are you with me? And apply it to the world now. Gaurapada says, look at Sat, pure being. This entire universe, names, forms, and existence, all the things that exist, there is something called pure being, Sat, on which all of this is superimposed. And when you investigate this, right here and right now, you find everywhere existence. You say, where, where? Everywhere. Don't you feel things exist? The simplest fact, that things exist, are, they are. Things, um, everything is. And that isness pervades everything. And all the things that we experience, they have no existence apart from that isness. In fact, from that isness, nothing, no other thing was born. If anything is born from isness, apart from isness, other than isness, not is. That's massacring the English language, but it means does not exist. Apart from existence, non-existence. There is no universe which was born from Brahman. Ajatavada, 
not non-origination. Just as the clay alone exists with a new name and a new form and a new use, Brahman alone is the only reality with many names, many forms, many uses. Names, forms and uses come and go. Transactions come and go. Brahman remains the same. This is the meaning of Ajatavada. Now, when Sri Ramakrishna says, everything is Brahman, or everything is my Divine Mother, you immediately say it's exactly the same thing. Do you see? It's exactly the same thing. Every bit of this. One uh, teacher put it very beautifully in India. He said, uh, in the Himalayas, Jokatyo, Thasathas Bharpur, in Hindi. Brahman is exactly what it was before creation, during creation, after creation. Before the universe, during the universe, after the universe. And the phrase Thasathas Bharpur is a colloquial Hindi phrase which means packed tight. This universe is packed tight with Brahman. They say there is not the slightest space in Brahman. This way of putting it, very colloquial way of putting it. There is not the slightest space in Brahman where you could fit in a universe. There is no space in Brahman for even one blade of grass. Brahman is, is packed solid. It's like, one teacher said, it's like a vast rock. Rock. It's good to hear such examples because the way it's normally taught is Brahman is so subtle that we reduce it to an idea, an abstraction, a concept. No, no, it's just the opposite. It is as real as reality itself. It is reality itself. Other than it, there is nothing. In reality, there is not the slightest sliver of space, slightest space for, uh, for an appearance to exist. All that the universe then is, why does it appear to be other than Brahman? It depends on Brahman. Brahman itself appears as this universe. To the ignorant, what is the world? To the enlightened, that itself is the absolute. Now we understand the great Buddhist Shunyavada, Nagarjuna. When he says, samsara and nirvana are exactly the same. Don't misunderstand. If you misunderstand, terrible problem. You will think that, oh, this is the only thing there is. No, 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 no. There is nirvana here. There is moksha here. There is the absolute here. And you have to realize that. But where? Not there. Here. Not then. Now. Yeah. Right. Do you have a question? Okay, so the lady there, please come. Tell us your name and ask the question. Namaskaram Swamiji. My name is Radhika. Yes. And uh, <clears throat> I have listened to many of your lectures, especially the Drik Trisha Vivek many times and uh, other Swamiji is also on net, and by the grace of my guru, um, I think I can say that sometimes I do see, I, I do see that I, the Radhika, doesn't exist, right? That, by the grace of my guru, um, I can hear that. Like now when I uh, look at your Trik Trisha Vivek videos or anything that you say, I can hear it. It's like my ears have opened. But, um, so when I'm in that state, right, the only thing I want to do is volunteer. 
just so much gratitude and there's nothing to do, just volunteer. And in one of your recent, uh, I think, question answer sessions, you had said um, that it's good to just immerse yourself in more sadhana and uh, volunteer unselfish ac actions at that point. So I was, do I was already doing that. But what happens is I get too involved, right? There is, like, I have two boys, 9 and 11. But when I'm there, I know they're being taken care of by the universe. They are, because nothing. But then some situation arises, like I have immersed myself too much into this, and they say something, or you know, the spouse says something, and it's like, it's a fraction of a second thought that, okay, so if I am um, not fulfilling this responsibility, like they are the first project, I produce them, so, so how can I not do that? And if I do this, then that <laughs> snaps me out of it. So like you're saying, clay on the pot, and I'm like, oh my god, the pot is cracking. <laughs> you know, but is it my responsibility or not? Or should I just continue? So now say if I come to this side, that okay, maybe I should just volunteer here in this side, right? And just be a volunteer here. Then of course, then the whole attachment comes not just to them, then I, the only first thought that comes to me is, we have to go back to India. Because I came here, I realized the greatness of India only after coming here and listening to people like you. But now when I go back there, I'm like, okay, India is the greatest place to raise. I mean, is I'm so pulled by it. Right. So this is the two places. The question is, now I'm here, but when I'm there, I, I know I should not be here. In fact, when I'm there, I, I think something should happen that I should never go there, <laughs> right? But now I'm here and so. Right, I, I, and I think I understand the question. Now, what you said is very good, that we get an insight into this, into the reality within and within everything. And that reality is always there. Now, the demands of the world seem to pull us this way and that way. When you say that, once I understand that reality is a great desire to volunteer, to this is called seva, and that's very good. Once we realize that I have really nothing more to want from this world, I am ever fulfilled, yeah. then what do I do with this body and mind? One thing could be to I remain immersed in the, that quietness and the bliss of that, Another could be, I pour myself out in service. That feeling comes. That's a very good feeling. That shows the genuineness of the breakthrough. But remember, the person, the Radhika mind is still alive. So it plays its little mischief sometimes. So when it says that, oh, I'm neglecting this duty and doing that duty. Whose duty is it? Is Radhika's duty or Brahman's duty? You as Brahman, you have really no duty at all. As this person, you are in a particular situation. And that situation has certain demands. That you will fulfill. That just go on fulfilling. For you, serving, to helping in the family, in your job, and in the larger community. For you, it is the same thing. Right? You will, from this perspective, you will never neglect your uh, duties or responsibilities. It will be taken care of. Don't worry about it. Your first duty is not the service outside. 
is not even the work that you do in the, at home or in the job. Your first and only duty is to remain centered in what you have found. Everything else will flow from that. Everything will be taken care of. It's no, and then there's a problem of immigrants. In that um, I hear it all the time. So next year we'll go back to India. And the, your children, some of the second generation Indians, you know, those who grow, grow up here, they have told me that there is nothing more terrifying when we hear our moms and dads think, saying, oh, well, maybe next year we'll go back to India. And we go like, no, we, are, we don't know India. We, we are Americans. We have been born here. So, no. In today's world, it's a world of this tremendous movement across borders and people born in one, one country, working in another country, living in a third country. Uh, so where is home? I was listening to Pico Iyer recently giving a talk at the New York Public Library. So he says that clearly if you look at me, I'm an Indian. But I've never lived in India. I was educated in England, where I always felt like an outsider. I work in the United States. He used to work in, uh, in New York. And he says, for the last 25 or 30 years, I live in Japan, where nobody ever does or ever will consider me Japanese. <laughs> so where is home for me? And he, he was joking. He, written, he has written a book about, I think it's called Autumn Light. He's written a book about Japan. This was launching the book. But the, the question is related to you. Where is home for me? He says, when I live there, the kids in the neighborhood, he said, they have given me a name in Japanese. And he said, well, he told us the word. He says, my Japanese is still at the, at the kindergarten level, but I understood that word. They see my wife going out and working so hard morning to evening. And because he's a writer, he mostly stays at home and he writes. But the kids don't know that. So they have named him the Japanese word for parasite. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, that's all right, that's sweet. But um, now the point is for... His conclusion, which I liked very well, uh, he says, ultimately home for most of us is a spiritual home. Home is not United States, India, China, Japan. Home is inside. Home is Brahman, is the reality which we are. That's really home. Be settled there, be calm there, relax there. And wherever the winds of karma take you, this country or the next country or somewhere else, where you are today, your children will be elsewhere tomorrow, grandchildren will be some other place. This is the world we live in. That's all right. Be centered in the spiritual reality within. Yes. I think we should take a look at some... I'll come back to you. Internet questions. There's somebody else who had raised a hand here. Yes, I'll come to you next. Some practical Vedanta questions. Yes. From Samaya Brata H. How is it possible to attain God remaining in this world having a wife and children? From Deepa R. Is it the duty of every spiritual seeker to set out in search of a guru who will initiate him or her with a mantra? Or, sh or should he or she wait for a guru to come into his or her life once he or she reaches the right level of maturity? And from Loris M, is it possible to become enlightened without initiation, or is it absolutely necessary? All right. I see um, a general question, the first one. How is it possible? 
to become enlightened in this world, realize God in this world with wife and children. Often, usually it's the fault of the wife and children. So, <laughs> the other way around, the uh, wife could say, how can I become enlightened with, uh, with husband and children? And the children could say, how can I become enlightened with parents around? <laughs> all of them are wrong. It's not the fault of the other person at all. Remember, spirituality is possible here and now. And it is meant for everybody in the world. It is when, it's like saying, um, how can I take a bath in the ocean? There are so many waves. Let it calm down, then I'll take a bath. No, you cannot. That will never happen. How can I go near the fire? I feel so cold. The fire is so warm. Let, it, let me become a little warm first, then I can go near the fire. I'm not worthy. That's so silly. If you're feeling cold, you need to go to the fire immediately, directly. If you feel the needs for spirituality, you have to start here and now, right now. Look at the Arjuna and Krishna. What, what ashram was the Gita taught in? Which Vedanta society? Nowhere. In the battlefield of life. Not in the mountains, in the plains of India, in the battlefield of life. Arjuna did not ask for spiritual advice. He asked a practical, ethical question related to his immediate problem, urgent problem. And Krishna gave him Veda, a Vedanta talk. <laughs> Second chapter of Gita, when Arjuna asked him, what should I do? It's an immediate and present and urgent problem. And Krishna goes to the highest metaphysics. Brahman alone exists. Uh, the non-real never becomes the real, the real never becomes the non-real. Nasato vidyate bhavano and so on and so forth. Because that is the direct answer. That is most applicable to um, Arjuna's question. And of course then he, he goes to the top of the roof but then lets down the ladder and the escalator and the, uh, and the staircase so that you can climb up. There are practical steps up there but that is the solution. We are like people the psychology behind the question is, um, for philosophers and monks and pundits, all right, you, are, you don't have so many things to do in the world. It's like saying, you're in a dream, suppose, you don't know you're in a dream, and somebody comes to you, you're in a dream, you need to wake up. Don't bother me with metaphysics. I have so many things to do. I have to go shopping, I have to get ready for, the, put the, drop the kids off at school, then I have to go to office, and there's this deadline waiting for me, and I hear there's a jam on the subway, all of it is in a dream. The solution to all the problems is not individually, severally, take up one problem by one. Somebody to do the shopping, somebody to drop off the kids, somebody to go to office and meet the deadline. That is not the solution to the problems. What is the solution? Wake to wake up. But if you say, no, no, that sounds too metaphysical. That's too theoretical. It's not theoretical. It's the only solution. If you don't like that solution, if you resist that solution, then they will give you other solutions. Yes, go and drop off the kids, but do it as a service to the Lord. And be a little detached there. Slowly disentangling you from what you are entangled with. So it's right here. Spirituality is possible right here, right now. Swami Vivekananda, in his talks on Practical Vedanta, he says, that uh, Vedanta was first and foremost action. Vedanta was first and foremost life. Then only it becomes philosophy and, and uh, religion. Whom was it taught by? By warriors like Krishna. 
Whom was it taught to? To kings and princes like Arjuna, to Rama, Valmiki the sage, uh, Vashishta the sage is teaching um, uh, Rama about the highest non-duality. Why is he teaching non-duality to Rama? Because Rama wanted to become spiritual, his idea of spirituality is going away, leaving the kingdom. And Rama's father is now afraid and he goes to the sage Vashishta. Please convince him, he wants to become a monk and leave the kingdom behind. Vashishta comes and to convince Rama, what does he teach? The highest non-duality. See, it's only when you teach non-duality, then right here, right now, this thing becomes spiritual. If you teach duality, what happens is, that is spiritual, this is not spiritual. I will leave this behind and go there. I will wait, this is not spiritual, I will wait for death to come after that, after. I will go there. So spirituality is here. Right here, right now, for people in the world. If you have awakened to the need for spirituality, you are blessed. Now a specific question about the guru. What is the need for a guru? Now, I have studied, I have understood. Why should I listen to anybody else? There is, a, there is a trick of the mind here. Especially in today's world. I depend upon my own thinking. Good. So far as it goes, good. You should depend upon your own thinking. But there's a limit to that also. And after some time it becomes foolishness. Why? When I say I depend upon my own thinking, why should I depend upon your thinking? It's saying that this brain, uh, the thoughts in this brain, are better than the thoughts in all other brains. Why? Ego. It's because ego. I'm attached to this one. So somehow this is better. But it's not true. If you're really detached, you'd see... There are so many minds, and so many minds have produced so many wonderful thoughts. Let me take the best. <clears throat> so the Guru is the embodiment of the spiritual traditions, at least some particular tradition, in your tradition, the embodiment of ancient spiritual traditions. In India, these are called parampara, that means a lineage. And um, so in that parampara, the embodied spiritual traditions of generations, of centuries, of millennia, are embodied in your Guru. So take that wisdom and you go ahead. This question never really occurred to me. Is a Guru really necessary for spiritual practice, for, for a God-realization? Because I felt God-realization is necessary. Enlightenment is necessary. And whatever helps me is good and welcome. So a major step towards that is a Guru. Guru and the teachings, a mantra, a particular method of practice, Commit to it. It's good to search. Five years. But 10, 20 years, I'm still backpacking in the Himalayas looking for a guru. Something is going wrong. What the mind is playing a trick. is telling me, these gurus are okay, but they are not like Ramakrishna. Yeah. Are you like Vivekananda? <laughs> it's a trick of the mind. It's preventing you from starting your spiritual journey. Sri Ramakrishna gives a very nice example. He says to the Truly thirsty person, even water covered with, you know, scum, there's kind of plant which covers the lakes in um, rural Bengal. Even that water, he will sweep that, that, uh, the water plants aside with his hand and plunge his face into the water and drink the water beneath because he's tremendously thirsty. He's not worried about uh, whether the water is clean enough or not. And for the person who's not thirsty, swizz alpine water. <laughs> 
So go ahead. If you are interested in spiritual life, definitely you must search. And today it's wide open. It's a supermarket of spirituality out there. <laughs> see, see what you like. If you have a tradition, follow that. If you have no particular tradition you're pulled towards, then look and see. Remember, it's ultimately, I will tell you something. It's not really you who are choosing. It's your karma which has chosen for you. Or if you're a devotee, it's by God's grace you're pulled to a particular tradition, you're pulled there. Larger forces are at work behind us. We think we have chosen. Fine, you choose. But choose and start. Yes. One more question? And then I'll come to you. Sometimes when I am reflecting on certain actions of mine, like turning down earning extra money or choosing not to indulge in a relationship, I can't differentiate whether they were an act of dispassion or I was just being lazy. In our day-to-day -day life, how do you tell the difference between viragya and tamas? Mm. And from Shaman R, by following the spiritual path, we ensure that we don't hurt others by any means. At the same time, how do we protect ourselves from others' wrong thoughts and acts? Are we becoming vulnerable to today's harsh society while following a spiritual path? Right. So these are practical questions of spiritual life. Question one, the many opportunities keep coming up in life. Should I take them? Should I not take them? Because if I take up these opportunities, it's an investment of time and energy. If I don't take them up, am I making an excuse? The mind will tell you that. You're making an excuse to be lazy. Should I have taken that up? You could have gotten more money and so Better experiences, you know, better vacation. So many things are open to you now. Here is where a clear aim in life is important. If you do not have a clear aim in life, a goal in life, your mind will trick you. It'll prey on you moment to moment. If my goal in life is to realize God, this is my goal in life. God is my ultimate goal in life. Enlightenment is my ultimate goal in life. Immediately you will see this goal in life makes decision making very easy. Then what about money? Yes, I will prosper in the world, do well in my profession. But that's secondary. As much as can be done, I will do. It's not a huge question. If I miss a couple of opportunities, no big deal because it's not directly related to my, um, my ultimate goal of God realization. If I get those opportunities and do well, well and good. But suppose it's an opportunity which makes me, you know, uh, I have to do something illegal. I'll get a lot of money. I have to do something immoral and get a lot of money. What is my goal? To become enlightened. To become a spiritual person. Clear decision. No. It has nothing to do with me. It's wrong. It's immoral. Nothing to do with me. Even if it's moral and allowable, is it really attractive to you? Because ultimately, if my goal is enlightenment, is a couple of thousand dollars a month more, more attractive to you? That you have to spend all your life, uh, your, your hours and hours, uh, you have to put in there, and you'll be exhausted at the end of every day. Is it worth it? No, no, no. Sri Ramakrishna would always say, it's nothing wrong in earning more. Somebody asked him, is it wrong to earn more money? No. But then he added, then that money also should be used, you know, in the, he would say, in the service of uh, holy people, in, in, in religious, uh, uh, in religious uh, uh, activities and so on. It should all flow towards one goal, ultimately. 
don't live, live a fractured life. I was reading this philosopher, 19th century, early 19th century philosopher, Kierkegaard. And he says that ultimately everything should be edifying. Everything should build up. What a powerful first opening statement. First opening prayer. I was so thrilled to see that. He starts with a prayer, a little, like a little poem. He says, O Lord, grant me dim eyes for all inconsequential things, but bright eyes for your truth. And I saw, what, what is the Gita verse we were studying? That which is night to the unenlightened is like day to the enlightened. That which is day to the enlightened is like, uh, like night to the unenlightened. Uh, that which is day to the unenlightened is like night to the unenlightened. Uh, the world with all its attractions, fears and temptations and anxieties is like night to the enlightened. It's nothing to them. It's unborn. Ajata. And Brahman, the one absolute shining everywhere through all persons and beings and actions in every experience. That is daytime blazing forth for the enlightened. And for the unenlightened, it sounds cool, cool and nice, but where is it? Like night for them. So, this opening statement. And then Kierkegaard goes on. He says, all the, oh, oh, the, the he says, all that we study and do in life, it must ultimately be for God-realization. Anything, he says, he says, the so-called, in quotes, the heroic attitude of the detached scientific attitude. I'm scientifically, academically studying this. I'm not committed. I don't believe in, he, he was a committed Christian. So the academician says, I don't believe in Christianity. I'm studying it in a detached way. He says to, he says to me, it, it is anything but heroic. It, it's frivolous. It's a waste of time. So God-realization becomes the, the purpose, the most urgent work in life. Then you will see all decisions become easy. Your mind itself will tell you. If you do not know where you are going, wherever you go will be unsatisfying. You get an Uber. Even before you get into it, you punch it in. This is where I want to go. If you get, in, if you get into the car and, and the taxi driver says, yellow cab, he asks you, where to? And you say, I don't know, just keep going. <laughs> Wherever you're going. No, you never do that. You don't do that in a yellow cab, but you're doing that in your life. That's why these questions come up. That's why these questions come up. There's a story of, uh, of a man galloping on a horse through a, a village in India, very seriously, he's on the horse and he's charging through the narrow lanes of the village on the horse. And a poor man is standing on the, by the roadside and he asks, Sir, where are you off to? And this man with a very serious expression looks back at him as he gallops off into the horizon and says, I don't know, ask the horse. <laughs> we have mounted the horse of life and it's galloping off into the sunset, but we don't know where we are going. That's why these questions come up. Yes. What was the second question? By following, yeah. by following the spiritual path, we ensure that we don't hurt others by any means. Right. At the same time, how do we protect ourselves from others' wrong thoughts and acts? Are we becoming vulnerable to today's harsh society while following a spiritual path? Right. 
when you're following a spiritual path, remember, simple fact, you're following a spiritual path. What's your job right now? Not to become the most uh, uh, um, uh, inoffensive, non-hurting person in the world. No, no. Your, your point is to become enlightened. That's the job right in front of you right now. Now, whatever helps you in that, good. If it helps you to be non-violent, good. But if you find there are people who are disturbing you in spirituality, you notice one thing about saints. They are not particularly saintly if you disturb them in, your, in their prayer and meditation. No, no, no. They are very conscious about that. Sri, Ram, Sri Ramakrishna used to say, um, when you step on the tail of a cobra, it will immediately flare up. But what is the tail of a spiritual person? When that, that God, spirituality, I'm, my meditation and prayer, my connection with God, that is most important. The rest is of no accord. There are beautiful verses. A rainy day like the today. A rainy day is not a rainy day. The day I do not take the name of Hari is a rainy day. Not English Hari. <laughs> Hari is Vishnu. is uh, the name of God. The day I do not remember God, that is the bad day. Not, not the day when there is a rainfall or some other misfortune. That's nothing to me. How does a person come to this attitude? Clarity about goal in life. So what about violence, non-violence? All of that will fall into place when you realize, I have to realize God. And if I am violent and angry, it will disturb my spiritual practices. So I will not be violent and angry. But if I put up with all of this, this nonsense and persons, somebody is persecuting me, somebody is harassing me, and my mind is being disturbed because of that, then I have to stand up. Always, common sense, common sense, common sense. Sri Ramakrishna put it this way. Bhag Narayan, the tiger, all are Narayan, our Lord is everywhere. Brahman is everywhere. In the hearts of all beings dwells Narayana, the Lord. But he says, don't embrace the tiger Narayana. Because the tiger will embrace you in, in turn. <laughs> yeah. So common sense there. The story of the mahout and the, the elephant, uh, the boy who heard that every god is everything, is walking along the village path and somebody shouts, run away, run away, the mad elephant is charging down the, uh, the lane. And this boy thinks that, oh, but my guru told me everything is god. So the elephant is also god, the elephant is also Narayana. And then the elephant comes, actually, and all the villagers have scattered. And the mahut, you know, the guy on top of the elephant, he's saying, I can't control it, get out of the way. So, no, it's Narayana. And the elephant, I guess, can't believe its beady little eyes. So, and it picks up this boy and throws him aside with it, his trunk and then charges on. The boy loses consciousness and the people from the ashram come looking for him. And they take him back to the guru. And when he revives, the guru said, what happened to you? He said, but you taught me everything is God. And the elephant came charging, and I thought it's God, but it picked me, picked me up and threw me aside, it hurt me. How can God hurt me? And then uh, the guru said, but the mahut told you to get out of its way, so why didn't you listen to the mahut Narayana? <laughs> God in the form of mahut tells you to get, get out of the way. God in the, you have an intellect, you have common sense. Basically from a philosophical point of view, it is true that you realize Bangles are the, the, the bracelet is gold, the necklace is gold, your tiara is gold, your, your earrings are gold. That's true. Once you realize they are all the same material gold, does that prevent you from putting each ornament in its rightful place? So now they are all gold. So I'm going to put the bracelet on, uh, on my head and the tiara on my wrist. No. That's crazy. You know the reality behind everything. 
But in day-to-day life, you're actually more capable of dealing with life, not less capable. Good. Yes, please come. Uh, First of all, um, I want to thank you for uh, bringing this to the internet world and making it feasible for people like me who have seen you, uh, maybe hundreds of videos. Uh, I've been on the spiritual journey for almost six, seven years and uh, learning about Vedanta philosophy actually hit the hammer on the nail for me. Uh, That brought me to visit here to you. So... uh, uh, My question is about the individual purpose. Uh, The reason I'm asking this question is uh, six, seven years ago when I came to uh, America after uh, coming from India, I got into divorce, mental health issues, uh, anxiety disorder, depression, and all sorts of things. And that's where the spiritual quest started. Uh, Many different places I went to, and eventually uh, I made a choice to leave my job and talk more about mental health issues how spirituality can come and you know fix the anxiety issues and how then eventually I became certified in pranayama and got into uh, some philosophy. So when uh, the non-dual dualism concept comes in where we say that Brahman is one and we are experiencing each other for the love of this, as an experience for the love of this creation, that's why it appears to be as many from one. Um, but at the same time, there is this mind which has its alignments and tendencies which pushes you to make some decisions and choices. So in this realm of existence, how much one's particular choice or um, tendency which is coming from the past lives is definitely playing a role, but is it like a role for the bigger purpose or is it really something called an individual purpose? All right. If I understand your question, Um, properly. You see, we have a set of tendencies from this life, from past lives, what we call our personality. That's the one which we experience as I, this person. My likes, dislikes, the makeup of my mind. In fact, people say, how do I know what was I in in past lives? Uh, What was I like? What did I experience? You really do not need to know the details. You know what you can look at. When we look at our present lives, we get a very good idea of, more or less, in general, what we might have been in past lives. We are the sum total of what we were in the past. So there's no need to go back and try to look for details, <laughs> what we, who we were or what we did in the past. So this is what we are right now. But this is in the mind. This is the conditioning of the mind. This is called, in Sanskrit, one word. It's called swabhava. It's a common word in Indian languages. We say in Hindi, bahut achha swabhava. It's a very good nature, we say. The word nature and swabhava, your, literally swabhava means your nature, or my nature, own nature. The thing to realize in Vedanta and Sankhya, as you said, You don't even have to come to Advaita. You can go to Sankhya. thing to realize is, this Swabhava is not you. You are not your conditioning. This Swabhava, this my nature, whatever I am like, this is not me really. 
I, the consciousness, am shining through this swabhava. This swabhava is like the, the painted glass. I am like the pure light. Shining through that painted glass, on the other side I become that colored light. So, you the pure consciousness, passing through that swabhava in your mind, when you appear in that body-mind to others, you appear as this person. The mistake is to think that I am limited by this swabhava. I have anger issues. So I am an angry person. No, you are not. That consciousness, which is the witness of the calm mind, that consciousness also lights up and activates the angry mind. That consciousness also is the witness of the guilty mind afterwards. Peaceful mind, angry mind, regretful mind, all of them come and go in that one consciousness which is not at all touched. It's like the pure blue sky, which is right there right now, though it seems to be full of grey clouds. So you are that, that's what Sankhya tells you. You are the pure consciousness in which Prakriti plays. So you are free of your Sobhava. That's the big thing to realize. Now, even when you realize I'm free of my Swabhava, it's still there. The person is still there. What do I do? What you do is now consciously, deliberately begin to refine this Swabhava, refine this person. From what you have understood by Vedanta or Sankhya, it's beginning to reveal to you a vaster dimension, a peaceful, serene dimension of your existence. You are unaffected by the clouds. Now once you know that, being centered in that, from that perspective, start the job of refining and cleaning up the personality. When negative emotions arise, anger, resentment, unhappiness, replace them. I, the pure consciousness, existence consciousness place, I am here and I am in the person whom I am resenting now. I am the same one. Whom to resent? From that perspective, now I replace the reactions of my little personality. So this conscious attempt to change the default settings. These default settings have come through many, many lifetimes of conditioning, unconsciously. Now that you, are, you know that you are not it, you have a place to stand on which is free of that. From that perspective, begin to change. Am I making sense? You should better say that he's making sense, otherwise he'll go on and on and on. <laughs> That's what happened in the Bhagavad Gita, you know. Arjuna asks, I have a question. In the moment he says question, another chapter starts. <laughs> Finally, Arjuna understood. And the, at the 18th chapter, when I mean, Krishna says, okay, uh, uh, did you get it? Arjuna says, absolutely clear. <laughs> I, I remember this long way back. I was in a school uh, for boys. And we were monks there. And this boy, in the afternoon class, afternoon class was you know, hot and muggy, and a lot of kids would remain in the hostel and would not come to the class sometimes. And we had to be on the watch out, who has not come to class, who is still sleeping. And this boy, I thought he was not in the class, suddenly he comes running and gets into the class. I catch, I catch hold of him. What happened? He said, uh, oh, I was sleeping there. And then, then the, the Swami, the monk there, who is a very patient, kindly person, he woke me up. And then, and then he started explaining why I should be disciplined and why I should go to class and why I should not sleep, uh, oversleep in the afternoon. And then I decided it's much better to come and sleep in the class than listen to all of that. <laughs> <laughs> you are with me. 
That conditioning is the person. I like that statement, that enlightenment freedom means being free of the person. The person doesn't become free, but the person can become a better person. When you replace anger with peace, when you replace unselfishness, you replace selfishness with unselfishness. You replace impulsiveness with self-control. How can you do that? You say it's so easy to replace. No, it, it is easy when you stand apart from it. When you say, I am it, I am angry, I have to calm down, very difficult. The mind, there is a wave of anger in the mind that has to calm down, much easier. Yes. My question was about the purpose. So, something that leads you to do something in this world, like mm. immense pain that I went through since childhood and now in the younger age as well. It led me into this direction and then eventually I opened up myself, left a lot of fears like getting money uh, with a high pay a highly paid job and stuff. Is there something which is which you call it as a purpose or is it something which is just you're the instrument of this uh, big divine force and then you're being... In either case, there is a purpose. Okay. The ultimate purpose is enlightenment and freedom. Achieving, moving towards that, that is called spiritual maturity. So at one time, I thought the height of achievement was to finish my education, get a family and get a job. And then you expand beyond that. Maybe uh, I think that, no, 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 not just this. I have to be creative. I have to write a book. I have to, then something more than that. Ultimately, who am I and what is this? You realize that. That's the point of the whole game. The realization, God realization, manifestation of the divinity within. Having realized that, then live light, live your life in that light. Yes. That is the purpose. And be careful of the, the uh, what's your name? Simi. Be careful of the Simi mind. That's still there. Until a person is fully enlightened, that person, individual mind is still there. Yeah. It will keep coming with questions like, Hey, you are very highly qualified. You should have done that job and been a millionaire on Wall Street by now. Why did you get into the sidetrack? No. If you follow that, disaster. What is the disaster? You will get into the same track and the same suffering and 10 years later you say, I shouldn't have done this. So, maturity, go ahead, go forward. Never look back. Yeah. This is all, all that was Swami Vivekananda says. I am glad that I have made mistakes. I'm glad that I have done good things. I'm glad that I have done bad things. They've all gone to make me what I am. And I go forward in spiritual life. Very good. Thank you. Very good. Um, I think we have already we got information that they're, they're ready. We can, we can take five more minutes, I think. Um, so many hands. Okay. There was somebody asking, raising hands there at the, um, this gentleman here. Please come. The reason I'm going on and on about Kierkegaard is there's a meeting of philosophers today. They're going to discuss Kierkegaard on the east side today. <laughs> so I've been reading up. That's why I'm a little full of Kierkegaard today. <laughs> yes. Namaste, Swami. Uh, my name is Siddharth. Siddharth. Yes. And um, I've been watching your videos for about a year now. And I found them very insightful. And uh, it's uh, given me a lot of clarity on a lot of doubts that I had in my life. And... Um, um, 
I had a few questions. Um, it'll be Ask difficult. One. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> so I'll try and keep this as brief as possible. All right. Um, would it be a correct conclusion to assume that the attainment of enlightenment results in liberation? And um, I read this uh, particular chapter in the autobiography of a yogi, which was uh, the resurrection of uh, Sri Yukteswar, which I found to be extremely um, enlightening. And uh, it kind of summed up the journey of the soul from the, the way I uh, you know, interpreted it to be. Um, so my understanding was that uh, the soul is expected to uh, transcend the physical body, the astral body, and the causal body before it finally attains final emancipation. And um, we are in this rut of uh, successive life and, and death, where we keep alternating between the, the gross world, the physical world, and the astral world. And when we get enlightenment, what our scriptures call as moksha, is when we finally move on to the astral world, and then there is a similar pattern over there between the astral world and the and the causal world, before you finally. I think I understand your question. Right. You more or less said what you want uh, to say. Not as yet. Like, yes. Yeah. Um, now, uh, I also happen to re uh, read this book uh, called Karma and Reincarnation by Edgar Casey, hmm. who was a very renowned American clairvoyant and psychic, in which um, there were a few people who had come to him where he he uh, mentioned to them in the in the trance state that he was in that there wouldn't be a, a necessity for them to reincarnate again and uh, there were there are also certain some of my friends in india who have been to astrologers and who have been told that they have what is called as a moksha kundali which in effect uh, says that there wouldn't be a, a, a necessity for you to to be reborn so is there any metric or what is Advaita Vedanta's standpoint with respect to a certain metric when it comes to a certain karmic liability mm -hmm. which would not require you to be reborn again? Um, right. So there are different frameworks. So what you are talking about, so there are frameworks in Tantra. There are frameworks in Sankhya. There is a Buddhistic framework. There is a Vaishnava or Shaiva framework of, of a theistic religion. And there is an Advaitic framework. There is also a framework. Notice what you said. What you are saying is correct. The same framework. Physical body, subtle body, causal body. What we call the subtle body, Sukshma Sharira. One of the subtle body is an English word. You could as well translate it into astral body. Correct. But, here is the thing. Notice in all of this, whether Edgar Cayce or Paramahamsa Yogananda's um, teachings, there's a whole concept of going from this world to other world, from this birth to that birth, and then also transcending or going beyond the physical body, going beyond the astral body, and then attaining to your real self and moksha. Notice, underlying the language, there is travel in space, waiting, through time, time and space. What Advaita Vedanta says, it's not that you are the physical body now, then you have to become the astral body, then you have to become the causal body, then somehow you have to go beyond that and become the uh, real self. You are the real self right now. You are expressing yourself through a causal body and through an astral body or subtle body and through a physical body. 
But right now you are that real self. You are Brahman itself right now. This transcendence of the physical body, subtle body and causal body, this transcendence, how does it take place? You have, do you have to die and then have to go to heaven? No, no, no. You are that right now and to realize it, that I am that witness consciousness. That itself takes you beyond the three bodies. Sthula, sukshma, karana, sharira, vetirikta, vilakshana, atma. That atman which transcends the three bodies. When? Now. How do you transcend? Through knowledge. So it's not in Advaita Vedanta, it's not a journey in space. From this world to next world. It's not a journey in time. Now and then. It's not a journey from one body to another body. Rather, it's a journey from ignorance to knowledge. To go beyond your dream world, the world of your dreams, to go beyond that. Where, have, where do you have to go? How long do you have to wait? One split second. If somebody comes and tells you, no, 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 this is a dream world, it is true, but to go to that so-called waking world, you have to wait until the end of this dream universe. That millions of billions of years later, the universe will end, then you will wake up. No, that's not true. To go beyond this dream world, you have to ascend to a higher spiritual realm um, by this particular technique. No, that's not true. All you have to do is to wake up from that. You're there. It's not a different place, not a different time, not even a different object. Wake up to your own real nature. That is what Advaita tries to do. It's so easy to say that. How do you do it? So many methods are there. Drigdrishya Viveka. By the simple process of Drigdrishya Viveka. The first thing I said today. You are consciousness and whatever you experience is an object. The physical body is an object. The subtle body or astral body, object. Causal body also an object. To what? If you intuitively feel that, you will be awakened immediately. It's a very direct way. You say, that seems theoretical, difficult. Then there are many other paradigms for you. Yeah. There are many, many, you can take the scenic route. <laughs> yeah. It is the scenic route. Take your time then. 40 years meditation, yoga. Or four lifetimes, 40 lifetimes. You can take your time. Advaita, if you, if you get what Advaita is saying, if it is true, then it is true right now, right here. You are Brahman right here. That's what I'm trying to say. Thank you. We'll take one or two more questions. Just five minutes. The gentleman there. Thank you. Uh, yes. My name is Norbert. Thank you very much, Swamiji, for the most delightful answers. A uh, question that I have is particular. It has to do with my um, having difficulties with reading the Viveka Chudamani, yes. particularly when the discussion of uh, Manomaya Kosha. Yes. It says that it's composed of Manas and uh, Karmendriya, the oh. sense organs. And then further, when it speaks of the Vijana Maya Kosh, yes. it says that it's composed of Buddhi and Buddhendriya. Mm. And I, um, which is translated as senses of perceptions again. Yes. 
and I couldn't uh, find neither the difference between the two words, John Hendria and, Car- and Bud Hendria, mm. uh, nor, I mean, I don't even know what these two terms refer to. The word seems to be the same, synonymous. Yes. But obviously there is a difference. Mm-hmm. All right. The question is about the nature of the Manomaya Kosha and the Vijnanamaya Kosha. Remember, this paradigm of the Panchakosha, the five sheets of the human personality, is taken from the Taittiriya Upanishad. It's a procedure, a methodology to realize who am I. It's not really about the body or the indriyas or the mind or the intellect. They're just taken as successively subtler and inward coverings. Coverings, which you're pointing towards the inner self, Pratyagatma. Now, what you're asking now is the Manomaya Kosha and the Vijnanamaya Kosha. The entire inner instrument, what you right now feel as the person inside, which is something, see the physical body is available to the doctor, the doctor can examine, but you the personality inside, thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas, desires, these are not directly available to the doctor. It's, not, it's a first person private thing. That is the subtle body. This subtle body is divided into three. Sukshma Sharira is divided into three. The Pranamaya Kosha, the Manomaya Kosha, and the Vijnanamaya Kosha. Now the Manomaya Kosha and the Vijnanamaya Kosha are basically the same thing, called the Antakkarana, the inner instrument, which is divided on the basis of function. The Manomaya Kosha is the, um, the Manas, the mind, the cogitating, cogitating function. Um, you can count it with the sense organs, Manomaya Kosha, or the same sense organs, and the intellect, you can count them together as the Vijnanamaya Kosha. They are not distinct. It's not even a case of double counting. Because the same thing being categorized in two different ways. So the same, same set. Karmendriya is different. So Karmendriya is the motor organs. And they are usually classified with the pranas. Yeah. Um, would it be fair to say that the Janendriya... Uh, have their objects and buddhendriya have a different set of objects no jnanendriya and buddhendriya are the same thing the buddhendriya is a new term coined in the vivek chodamani you see what what i'm saying is it seems as if it has been counted twice manas plus jnanendriya manomaya kosha buddhi plus jnanendriya vijnanamaya kosha same jnanendriya and the manas and buddhi also are not different. They are two different functions of the same instrument. So when you count these sense organs with the mind, you call it the manomaya kosha. When you count the same sense organs with the intellect, you call it the, uh, the vijnanamaya kosha. It's not that buddhindriya and jnanindriya are different. Buddhindriya and jnanindriya are the same thing, the five senses. Here they are called jnanindriya, there they are called buddhindriya. But basically the same thing. Yeah. They, they are, but they are all objects. Objects to what? The physical universe is an object to your sense organs, Gyanindriya. But the Gyanindriya is an object to your buddhi. From your intellect perspective, the senses are objects. The buddhi itself is an object to consciousness, Atma. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Yes, the gentleman there, please come. That's the last question. Otherwise, I'll be late for Kierkegaard. (laughs) 
Maharaj Pranam. I'm Dabani from Syracuse. Uh, first, thank you for making Advaita Vedanta available for anybody who's interested uh, through the YouTube. Uh, my question is, we have in the Advaita Vedanta, Brahman is defined as Sat, Chit, Anand. Are they mutually exclusive or do they arise from the central principle of consciousness? The reason I ask this question is, I don't exist unless I'm conscious of the existence. And am I in Ananda because I exist? Right. So what is the relationship between, if, if any, between Sat, Chit and Ananda? Pure being, pure awareness and pure bliss. Whole lectures can be given on this point. In the Taittiriya Upanishad, where Brahman is defined as infinite existence consciousness, Satyam, Jnanam, Anantam, Brahma, Shankaracharya goes page after page. Uh, trying to uh, uh, discussing the these terms no they are not mutually exclusive they are literally the same thing um, one way of understanding it is negative the only way of describing brahman is as being because it is not non-existence it is it is described as consciousness because it is not unconscious it is consciousness it is described as ananda it's because not that it is not bliss so these are not positive descriptions, these are like negative descriptions. This is one way of looking at it. Another way is, it is the same thing which is understood as pure being, pure awareness, pure bliss. Another way of understanding this is, asti bhati priyam. Existence is understood where? Everywhere. In this universe, whatever exists, there you find existence. If it does not exist, then it's not there at all. So anything that you consider as real in this universe, you will find existence there. Astitva. Alright with me? So asti, existence is there everywhere. Where do you find bhati, consciousness, awareness? Where do you find it? Not everywhere. Where do you find it? It's a sentient beings, living beings, correct? In living beings, in a, in a, in a, what is a living being? The word, very word has this, the living. If you put it in Sanskrit, prana. So literally it means any being, any existing thing which has a subtle body, sukshma sharira. Pranamaya kosha, we're just talking about it. Pranamaya kosha, manomaya kosha, vijnanamaya kosha. Then it is a living being. There we find that existence, follow this carefully, that existence is now manifest as consciousness. Not only is, is aware. So, isness, awareness. Now further, in that living being, in the mind of that living being, when that mind is sattvic, pure, calm, serene, then that isness, awareness further manifests as bliss, blissfulness, fulfillment, priyam. Notice something, they successively telescope into each other. Existence. When you talk about consciousness, it must be a conscious existence. It can't be non-existent consciousness. So consciousness plus existence. The moment you say a consciousness, already existence is implied there. Otherwise it's non-existent. So it's an existent consciousness. The moment you say bliss, all, to, all of them are implied. It must exist. It must be aware. How can you be non-aware blissfulness? You are aware. You are. You are aware and blissful. So in fact, one of the the highest definition, the highest indication pointing towards Brahman is Ananda, bliss. Because it includes isness, awareness and bliss. 
bliss is a good point to end this uh, discussion on. Thank you very much. And please join us for food downstairs. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu